The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Come on, man. This Bendrovsky Show, Benny J. Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J., take it away. Bonus time in the Bendrovsky Show as I speak. It's Friday, October 23rd, 2020. Lord knows when you're listening to this. It's a podcast. It could be 10 years down the road. So if it is, let me tell you what was on the front page of the newspaper on this very day when I recorded this uh, interview. Here's the headline in the New York Times. Trump and Biden feud over future and the pandemic. Final debate opens with calmer tone, but predictions differ sharply. Can I just say this before I introduce my distinguished guest? I mean, the bar is so low with Donald John Trump. It's like Donald John Trump gets through the the debate more or less without breaking all the rules, more or less without insulting the moderator, says something remotely nice uh, about uh, Kristen Welker, the moderator, and everybody's like, whoa, what a performance by Donald Trump. You know, I thought we got rid of social promotion. Back in the old days, Daily and Vallis, what we cannot just promote people because it's a socially acceptable thing to do. We have to hold them accountable and make sure they progress to the next level. But with Donnie Trump, all the dude has to do is avoid assaulting the moderator. And it's like, whoa, what a performance by Donald Trump. Anyway, sorry. Sorry, I apologize for that tangent. With that, I will turn to my distinguished guest. He may disagree with me. I'd be curious to see what he thinks. He may say, you know, Ben, you're unfair to Donald Trump. So we, <laughs> we, we, we shall see as I turn things over. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Uh, this is State Senator Robert Peters of the 13th District, uh, which is from the Gold Coast along the lakefront down to the Indiana border. I think this is my third time on the show. Uh, I think it may be your third or fourth. I can't recall. Yeah. Uh, it's a popular segment. And uh, the fir- I, I, cur- I encourage everybody, uh, Robert Peters, to go back and listen to the first interview that we did. I don't know if you recall that. That was a, gr- a great interview, if I must say so myself. Uh, you told your whole life story. And you said it was like a therapy session. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was a lot of fun. Robert Peters, a state senator, uh, he holds the seat that Barack Obama once held. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and he's also a big time Bernie Sanders supporter, was Bernie's man in Illinois. I think that's the first t- reason you came on the show to promote Bernie. Isn't that yeah, right, Robert? Been a, a large time talking about my story, systemic injustice. We got deep. And then we finally got to talking about Bernie, but I think they're connected for me. So it's all connected and a river runs through it. All right. Let's, um, that said, first of all, let's promote what you have coming up this Tuesday. This is pretty exciting. You told me about this when, when I called you to, to go over the interview and this is freaking awesome. So tell folks what you're doing this uh, Tuesday. 
So this Tuesday with uh, People's Action, which is a national organization, uh, I'm doing a Defeat Trump Town Hall with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, and uh, Vic Mensa. So AOC plus three. Wow. And so how do you get to watch that? Oh, you so you should visit People's Action's Facebook and social media. They also have a link uh, uh, on Crowdcast. I don't have the website on me, but I would visit People's Action on Facebook. All right. Some millennial stuff, but even baby boomers can figure it out. Uh, and uh, that's really cool. Robert Peters will be with AOC, Bernie Sanders, and Vic Mensa. And for 10 trivia points, Robert Peters, before we go any fur- further, what high school did Vic Mensa graduate from? Oh, um, I'm going to say Whitney Young. Excellent. Give that man $100. Uh, and I believe, how about this? Robert He's from Peter. Is he? I thought he was a Northsider. Uh, Vic Benz is a rapper, ladies and gentlemen. I'm really cool. I know about rap community. Uh, Robert Peters, watch this. Robert Peters is a proud graduate of Mount Carmel High School in the High Park community, or actually the Woodlawn community. How about that, Robert Peters? What a memory I have. All right. Um, Let's talk about uh, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, you were big time Bernie Sanders supporter. You came on the show a couple of times as a surrogate for Bernie, uh, singing his praise. And I was joining you as well. I, I voted for Bernie. Everybody knows that. Um, as a Bernie Sanders supporter, as a Bernie Sanders Democrat, a New Deal Democrat, essentially, what's your attitude about Joe Biden these days? I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, I obviously really wanted uh, Bernie Sanders. What I think about Joe Biden is that He's someone that I believe is open to being held accountable, um, you know, to the point where if you look at how he talked about climate justice yesterday, uh, it would put him be maybe the most progressive president when it comes to climate change and fighting climate change. Uh, he's a, you know, a good friend of labor. Um, you know, he's a strong relationship with labor. He's been very out front when it comes to our labor unions. Um, and I, I think he's someone who, you know, will build, he'll, he'll build the, you know, he has the relationships, but he'll build an administration that will include um, folks from the left and from the progressive left. I don't see that in just like blindly. I think that it's important. And I think this goes for any politician, myself included, that there's a, you know, a tremendous amount of accountability. My hope is, um, that I'm not jinxing this by talking about a Biden administration before the election. Um, but if he does win, we have to hold him accountable. But he's someone who's a lot easier to hold accountable than a lot of politicians, and especially Donald Trump. Oh, my God. Listen, Robert, I'm, I won't uh, try to fake anything. I've been waiting to vote against Donald Trump for, since November of 2016 when he was elected. I've been waiting for this moment for four years. Uh, so I knew whoever the Democrat was, even if it was Michael Bloomberg, he's not even really a Democrat. Remember Michael Bloomberg ran for a while? I was going to vote for that, actually. Um, <laughs> I think he promised a billion dollars to whoever was running against Donald Trump. And, um, Yep, still yeah. waiting. <laughs> yeah, waiting. That checks in the mail, Robert Peters. Um, I got lost. He he too is mad at the United States Postal Service, but uh, I don't know if it's legit because that billion dollar check is somewhere. Uh, it's, it's not. 
I think he, he kicked in a hundred million. Don't quote me on that for Florida or, or not a hundred million, a million. I don't know how much he promised to kick in something. Um, David Sirota, who was the press secretary or the speechwriter for Bernie Sanders and now has his own um, uh, blog site. Uh, has said that in his humble opinion that uh, you can push Joe Biden left, that uh, he will not resist it as much as, let's say, uh, the Clintons would have. Uh, So I took that as a hopeful sign, uh, Robert, and that uh, maybe you're correct. But first things first, uh, Donald Trump has to be defeated. Yeah, I mean, the way to put this is... um Donald Trump is a, hopefully he's so inept that he's not the, the sort of right-wing authoritarian uh, that we all fear because of his own ineptitude more than anything. But he opens up, even if he wins or he loses, he opens up his brand of politics, Trumpism, in a very dangerous manner. And then the other part about this is defeating Donald Trump gives us the space we need to keep organizing and keep building. So it's one part of getting Joe Biden in office. It's another part of keeping that man accountable and keeping the administration accountable. It's a third part of for the longer term organizing that if you're doing, you know, particularly the climate justice work, but you're doing any of this work that's progressive and trying to move this country forward and move this world forward, defeating Donald Trump needs to happen because it gives us the space to keep doing the work um, that we've got to do. All right. That said, uh, how did you evaluate last night's debate? Uh, um, yeah. So for the first seven minutes, I was like, Oh, you know, this is, uh, you know, my heart is um, it's pumping blood at a normal rate. <laughs> um, and then it just, I mean, Trump can't help himself. I mean, he's just, it's like, I don't, it, it's a level of narcissism and ignorance combining together to create a very frustrating human being. Um, and, you know, for me, analytically, I'm like, well, there's a line between Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump. And that is, that that is definitely true. That is like, a, 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 you know, to me, a fact. So that's a fact, a fact that I personally believe clearly objective. Um, but the level of frustration with him is the fact that, and this sounds crazy. He doesn't, he's so real. And there's this whole idea of like, well, and I mean, real isn't like it, that's his person. That's who he is. He's not like pretending to be a person at all. And I'm not even saying that as a politician. Sometimes when you have people to people interactions, you know, and you, you're seeing your friends or your family, you sometimes do things where in your head, you're like, I've had a long day. You know, I don't know if I want to have this interaction with this person. So you, you just, you kind of gently, you know, you're nice and you do your thing. It completely misses it. It's like completely m- messed up in there. Uh, and it's just all like stuff in his head that just blurts out and, and it blurts out in this, aggressive masculine angry form and it's wild and it's crazy and it's i it's the most frustrating thing for me i mean i the first debate it was like if you were on you know some sort of roller coaster and it just kept going up and down up and down up and down your heart's just completely racing and this one just 
kept building and building and building. And I, I think for Biden, he did particularly well. Um, he stayed in the message that he had to stay in. You could tell that was like, you know, he was prepared for it. He was ready for it. They, you know, whoever did debate prep knew you got to play to the camera. People forget that's an important part of these type of things. It's like you're communicating not just verbally, but also with how, you know, people read your face. And, um, and I think Trump knows that very well because of his apprentice days, you know, being in the media. So he particularly put, you know, facial expression thing going on there. He knows how to communicate that way. What comes out of his mouth is very different. But, you know, Biden would make these facial expressions where he didn't actually have to say uh, much because he was he was saying a lot um, through an eyebrow raise or an eye roll or, you know, he would make some sort of sound uh, that would go with an exasperated look. And, you know, he also said a thing that I thought was extremely bold and very progressive towards the end when he, he basically admitted that he believes that we have to move away from oil. Um, and if, if people need a reason to, to vote for Joe Biden, it's right there in that statement. I mean, the, the, he moved um, from a position, I'm sure, a year ago where he never would have said that to saying it, repeat, knowing that he said it out loud, which for him must have felt risky, doubling down on it, defending his position, and so not only did he finally say, you know, he didn't think fracking was good long-term, he also said, you know, when it comes to oil, it's not good long-term. And that was, that was for him, and I, in, in all honesty, I think where we're at politically still a risky move. People Climate polls better than, than almost any other issue in terms of if you break it down right in a poll and long-term, it's still, you know, since we live by an electoral college system, that's still a risky move to make, and he... He did it, and then Trump, I think, was shocked and tried to go at him, and he defended it. If we need any sort of hope in the progressive movement that that's someone that we can hold accountable, it's right there in that line, in that debate. Well, you raise a very good point uh, when you made that uh, in our electoral college system, because clearly Joe Biden's uh, position on fracking is targeted toward Pennsylvania. The key one of the key states, showdown states, Democrats feel like they compel. They have to win Pennsylvania. That's his whole appeal. Scranton, Joe, et cetera, and so forth. And it's just really frustrating, uh, Robert, for me. And I've been railing against electoral college for many years. It's it's really frustrating for me that we have to play this contest out on a map, on a, on a playing field that is so favors a minority of the country. You know what I'm saying? When you're worried about offending the pro-fracking frack, crowd in Pennsylvania, which is, I'm sure is a, a, a subset of that whole state, if you think about it. You know, if you're worried about that subset, yeah, it's going to be really hard to enact any kind of meaningful uh, climate change uh, programs. Yeah. I mean, I think the way that's why that, that in that debate where we finally had a debate where climate was front and center for a part of the debate where a, a question uh, with follow-up questions were specific on, uh, you know, climate justice and climate change. Um, and the fact that, the, you know, the democratic nominee came out, and admitted things around fracking and oil that, um, you know, were, were bold. I think that's just, it, it, 
that's, that gives me some hope. And I think that there are a lot of people in Pennsylvania who don't vote, who don't like fracking, but they don't have a lot of hope for our politics and, and how, you know, governments work for them. Uh, and I think there's a lot of people across, you know, racial lines, um, but definitely sitting in specific class lines who know what fracking is doing to their water and their environment, who otherwise don't feel like they need to go out and vote, who maybe because of what was said can be convinced that there is someone who actually can be pushed and moved on this and that they can go out to vote. And, you know, the person who might care about fracking a little bit can be outweighed uh, with people who need to need that extra push, that extra motivation to go out and vote because the task for us isn't to shame people into voting this election. Uh, shaming people um, into anything is to, to backwards way of, uh, you know, of voter movement to organize. If you're an organizer, you shouldn't think that shame is going to work long term. Um, but it's speaking to what they really care about and moving them and saying, here's something that I've gone through. Here's something that you've gone through. Let's try to go through this together to change blah, blah, blah. I think that this is an, an opportunity for people in Pennsylvania to be moved on, 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 on voting. And yes, the electoral college system and, you know, the system we have, which is just very much biased towards minority rule, which goes way back to the founding of the country is absolutely, I mean, yeah. I mean, it makes it so that, you know, here in Illinois, we don't get a lot of uh, Joe Biden rallies. You know what I mean? It's just not, not they don't need to come here right now. Yeah. Um, and it, that it, it makes it a little difficult. And I think to be honest with you, it has an impact, um, you know, on things across the ballot because, usually you can use the, the top of the ticket to help move other areas uh, across the ticket. Well, we'll get to that uh, when we talk about the fair tax in a little bit. But before I leave the, the presidential race, I, I was also encouraged in two fronts. Uh, with Donald Trump, which is so bizarre, uh, attacking uh, Joe Biden for super predator uh, comments that Hillary Clinton made, not Joe Biden, I want to point out, uh, but the abominable uh, criminal justice bill, I have that in quotes, from the 90s. Uh, of all people in the world to attack Joe Biden on that, Donald Trump, uh, who, of course, uh, was like for killing innocent uh, black people in New York who were falsely accused of a crime. That's really interesting that he all of a sudden is a criminal justice reformer. But Biden backed away from it. And I don't even think Biden was backing away from uh, that bill in the in the uh, summer debates. I'm just trying to go back in mind to the summer uh, when it would be the 20 Democrats on two sets of stages. So I was a little surprised to, to see that. What was your thoughts about that? Um, I mean, I think that um, I think Biden on criminal justice reform is still going to be a lot of like that. That's going to be a lot of work. Um, and I think that he, on some of the things he did, a, sort of an apology for that. And I think he did some stuff. So he sort of backed away on the, the crime bill. I think he backed away on the immigration stuff. Um, and I still think that he, there's going to be some poster in his head who's going to tell him a specific message that he he's going to need to be pushed on. I think that's definitely a thing. I think that, um, I do think it's laughable that Donald Trump, I mean, Donald Trump's line that helped kick that off, I think was 
Uh, I'm the least racist person in the world. Um, I mean, he's, we all know his history from his, you know, um, the, the racism in terms of housing uh, back, you know, in the, I think the seventies um, to, you know, when we think about the central park five uh, kids that he called for the death penalty on uh, to everything he's done since, and especially as president uh, for him to try to use that. It just goes to show that the Republican party, particularly the right of the Republican party, the Republican party as a, as a whole, I think we all know, has this, have these issues, but the, the fact that when you are so right and so racist, um, that you try to do that attack and it will never stick. Like you, you, you're, you're a very homogenous party. Um, and it will never stick, That that attack will not, stick. that is, I think Donald Trump could have gotten away with that, you know, in, in 2016, um, when he was portraying a slightly different candidate, not, not that different, but slightly different because he was so unknown uh, as a, you know, as a political figure. But now that we know everything that we do know about this guy, um, and, you know, I think he's trying to target a specific reactionary element. Well, we can get into a broader conversation about how there's a certain reactionary element that is literally moving across different uh you know, races. So, you know, I, I think that's a, it's a real concern, but he's trying to make a play particularly to men um, uh, and reactionary men and, you know, the re- reactionary element within black men, that is a problem. And I think that's something that he's been trying to make a play at. And, uh, you know, he's just not, he's not the, the, the messenger of that, but I think that's a thing that he is definitely trying to do in this campaign. Well, the Republican strategy when it comes to black voters is pretty clear. One, suppress the vote, keep them from voting. And two, if that doesn't work, uh, send out negative messages uh, uh, about the Democrats to deter people like from even wanting to vote to figure like, well, what's the point? They do stink. And that there's a lot of issues the Democratic Party has in regards to the black community. We all know that. Uh, But I, I don't think. I don't see how any logical human being in this country could take a look at the Republican Party of Donald John Trump and the Democratic Party led now at the moment by Joe Biden and say, oh, black America is going to get a better deal out of Donald John Trump. Do you follow what I'm saying? I just don't know how you can say that. I do. There is, you know, I think this is a thing that we're going to have to work on is that there is a risk with um, a percentage of black men who are polling higher this year than they did in 2016 from when I last saw and I have to see it where they support Donald Trump that is concerning but that's happening that's this trend is impacting also if you're Latinx if you're white uh, particularly with men um, that I think it's going to have to we have to keep an eye out for it because I think it's um, it's a broader part of the conspiracy theory movement um you know i don't want to say the name of that movement i'm I'm always worried about uplifting it and i think i think we talked about talking about this later but um its risk is its ability the intercept did a really good podcast with someone i think from the daily beast who's learning about these conspiracy theory movements and how how we normally peg it specifically for um 
you know, this white world thing, but it's, it's, a, it's a more, it's a more flexible movement that is very concerning. So that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot that I just threw out there, but uh, yeah. yeah. You did throw a lot out there. And uh, so let's, let's uh, get to what you were alluding to in that sentence. As you told me this uh, before we went on here, I did not realize this. I want you to catch people up on this. Um, over the summer, you were the recipient of some death threats uh, I was not aware of that. I'm not a Twitter follower. You put the death threats on your Twitter feed. So the best place to conceal news for me is to put it on Twitter uh, since I never look at it. Uh, so why don't you tell folks a little bit about these death threats and what they emanated from? Yeah. So um, Miracle Boyd with Good Kids Mad City, um, you know, she got hit in the mouth and chipped a tooth at the Columbus statue protest by a police officer. Uh, I was very upset, and so I tweeted in support of her, and you know, I had offered her an internship, um, you know, after we were talking about gun violence protection work that she's been doing with the Peace Book, and she made a really good hard ask uh, for me on that. Um, and then after that, um, you know, I guess it went, went viral, as they say, so a lot of, you know, it was, I guess it showed up in the Daily Mail, uh, which means it led to some, att- it got some attention from some people and um, they threatened me and they had threatened Miracle who got a lot of threats. Um, and I, you know, was pissed. And so I uh, put one online to, um, to basically be like this, you can't just scare me. Um, you know, and I, I, it came from a place of a lot of like, one part being scared, another part being angry, another, you know, and the third part being like, I can't, you can't operate in this world with such fear. I don't know. This is a deeper thing where I get extremely existential. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was during the summer around the Columbus statue protests, um, where people who didn't leave a name, um, we I don't know if the number was real or fake, but um, they thought it would be great to to make a, to make threats call my office and uh, there were a few of them and then I just learned you know we just had this situation where people were trying to threaten you know Governor Gretchen Whitmer um, there were threats uh, you know this long list of threats I think someone in the East Coast was doing uh, which included DSA and the Lincoln Project to tell you where folks are at on this and then I just saw that Alicia Garza um was visited by the FBI because they found that someone was threatening her. She helped found the black lives matter movement work. Um, but she, she was on a list for someone planning to assassinate her. So it's, which is extremely frightening where this conspiracy theory, right wing reaction thing is going, um, to the point where, you know, I had this incident, uh, it was late last year, I believe, or it was early this year. I was at a bar back when a very easy thing to do, uh, where your anxiety came from a whole bunch of other things. But I was, I was having a drink with some friends and, you know, enjoying a beer. And, um, this person kept staring at me. Uh, and this is before all of this was really going. Person kept staring at me. Uh, it was very tense and weird. And then as he walked back, um, he tapped my shoulder and said, Senator Peters, this is in Hyde Park, said, Senator Peters. And then I looked at him as he's walking by and he's just laughing and then he just leaves. 
And I remember just being like, what was that? You know, what, what is that? Like, I, the only thing I, the only vibe I got from that was negative. It was not a positive vibe, you know? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, I don't know what that was about. That sounds really weird. Uh, I mentioned to you that last night, uh, instead of watching the debate, I was watching Borat 2. Uh, and I urge you to watch it. I've been urging everybody to watch it. It's, it's a really um, important movie at this time. But one of the things uh, that um, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen does in his Borat character uh, is to spew racist and anti-Semitic rhetoric to ordinary people. And then the camera captures their willingness to go along with it. And beyond that, I mean, it's some of it's comical. Like it's so bizarre. The things that people will go along with when he suggests it in his goofy, you know, uh, way that that persona he has, but there's a lot of anti-Semitism out there, Robert Peters and your Hyde Park uh, uh, state center. You yourself are not Jewish, but you have a lot of Jewish, uh, constituents it is out there it's deep i believe that uh, a lot of it it will be directed at jb pritzker because he's taking bold stands in terms of uh, covid protection and the fair tax i, I if you watch borat 2 it's kind of scary do you have a similar sense uh, and fear on this front yes i i i am extremely frightened about this um there's multiple things that make me frightened about this. I remember I visited the, um, the, the Holocaust museum recently. Uh, and, um, you know, the tour guides, like, you know, on the one side it's dark and on the other side it's light. The light gives us hope. You know, I was like, I'm, I'm like extremely, as, as I've been during this, instead of my normal jokey self, it's an extremely serious tone, extremely serious feeling. But I was like, I, I think it's dangerous to live in hope in this situation. Uh, you know, particularly around anti-Semitism, you know, and I think it's because I was an extremely, you know, sort of deeper place during this moment. But I said, you know, you can't just have blind hope. There's hope and there's optimism for the future, but there's a sense of pessimism in the short term. Um, and after we do the whole tour, and we get to the uh, the famous poem, the quote, you know, first they came from the communists and the socialists and the trade unionists and the Jews, and then they came to me. And I just pointed to the tour guide and I said, you know, when you bash the left and you bash progressive people um, who are going to most likely be on the front lines when something dangerous is happening, when fascism is rising, a right-wing reactionary is rising, this is what this quote is telling you not to do. Um, you know, the supposed scary anarchist, you know, that we, you know, is causing all this mass chaos, supposedly. I was like, you're just playing into a right-wing reactionary trope uh, that makes it easier for them to be targeted. Um, that's, that's very dangerous. And it's right there. We always use this quote, but very few people seem to actually abide by this quote. Um, they love to use it because it makes them sound smart, but it's actually a warning. Um, and for me, I, you know, there, there's a movement, uh, a modern day blood libel movement. Um, then we'll just, uh, we'll call Q, I guess. We'll go, we'll say part of its name, I, I mean, but I, I'm trying to, I don't want to push it out there more. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, but it's extremely dangerous and flexible 
conspiracy theory that is sort of the uh, it takes in all the conspiracy theories of the world and somehow make it into one and it's flexible in how it does that and it's deeply deeply anti-semitic and deeply deeply dangerous on that level it's basically blood libel um and it's extremely frightening to me and it's to the point where you know if we're gonna fight systemic racism um what we need to know is that what makes someone dangerously anti-semitic is that they believe uh, the racism is the idea that if you're black or Latinx or black and immigrant, we're sort of like passive, blah, blah, blah. Right? But under anti-Semitism, there's a supposed battle in the world. You know, there it's, it's the, you know, the conspiracy of the Jewish puppet master who is causing black people to rise up. It's causing immigrants to rise up or causing women to rise up. It's like this, massive conspiracy theory about power. Um, and I think there's also a little bit of anti-Chinese xenophobia that's in there as well now that's happening. But this supposed outsider who's trying to control everything and we're in a battle against this outsider, uh, and that is extremely dangerous. That's like an extremely dangerous thing to have in the world. It's becoming, it's sort of always kind of been there, right? We've known this anti-Semitism has been there for quite some time. There were the marches and Skokie, um, like th- this is this is like we know this, but to the extent that it's flexibility now and the and the way that social media works makes it extremely dangerous. And so, to tie this to the governor, I, I definitely you know we saw this during the reopening protests where people were using fascist imagery, um, and I can't remember the exact saying on you know the gates of Auschwitz, but. Uh, I think it would, you know, work will set you free, which was yeah. absolutely. The fact that they targeted that towards a Jewish governor, complete, they're completely missing how that doesn't make actually any sense, but how dangerous that is. Um, this belief that he's like, you know, got some secret control going on. And, you know, I can't speak for the governor and I'm not going to, but I wouldn't be shocked if someone who helped, you know, he played a big role in, I think, helping the Illinois Holocaust Museum uh, get going. And, um, you know, he's really invested in, in fighting against anti-Semitism. If that doesn't weigh on him, that doesn't concern him. Um, and I think that a lot of these battles that are happening in this state after going after JB are anti-Semitic. And, you know, I think it's important for us to call that out uh, and to fight that. And, I'm not saying every battle against the governor is anti-Semitic, but there are ones about this reopening and about masks and about the fair tax and about his power that are, is very clearly in, in a reactionary anti-Semitic space. And it's very disgusting. So I'm with you hundred percent. And I've, uh, for all the political differences I have with Jim Dirk and the, the uh, Republican legislator from uh, DuPage, I gave him credit for actually speaking out against the protesters who had uh, the signs with the Nazi slogans on them. But I hate to say that Republican party, that's because there was one guy, that's it. I didn't hear big D D DB Darren Bailey speaking out about it. You know, I didn't hear any other leaders of the Republicans party speaking out about it. You guys hiding under a desk for fear of alienated MAGA. 
no matter how racist or anti-Semitic he gets. So it's pretty frightening when I see the cowardice of the Republican Party, again, with Jim Durkin to the exception. And a point you made was a very good one, Robert. I was like, you were so right about, like, they marginalized the left. And it'll be the left, God forbid, touch wood, it doesn't happen, that will be on the front lines. They're always the ones on the front <laughs> And they marginalize the left to the point. Robert, I'm here from my favorite themes. MAGA cries, the biggest babies. If you ever criticize a MAGA person, you're picking on me, you're making fun of me, sobbing. It has been unrelenting demonization of the left since the last century, the turn of the last century, J. Edgar Hoover, to the point where Donald John Trump in his utter idiocy at that debate, he's taking away health care, what little health care we have for people. Biden's presenting his plan. He goes, socialized medicine. Do you know how many years of investment into demonizing the left he was drawing off of when he just said socialized medicine, figuring all the yahoos in America would go, well, yeah, well, that's true. I'd rather go without insurance than have socialized medicine. Not only did he say socialized medicine, I think he defended Medicare uh, <laughs> right after that, which yes. is a government, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it, it, it it's the fact that that can be, people just don't seem to see that contradiction. Uh, but yes, this is, I mean, it is, I don't say this a lot, Um but there was this one moment where I, I sat and I thought, you know, it's sort of just like as a board exercise to myself um, and not necessarily out of some sort of paranoid delusion. I just thought, who are the people who would like sell me out if fascism happened? Like that was a thought that had popped in my head for at least even 10 minutes was, I wonder who, who, would, who would sell me out? But like the fact that I even thought that, and, you know, I guess that will happen when you tour a museum around genocide. But that is like, that's a wild thought to have is like, who do I know who would, who would go? And, you know, and then I watch Inside Man. So, which is, I, I love Inside Man. It's a really good movie. But the, the thought in my head was who would, who would do that? And the fact that we even have that. Um, but that's what that poem is saying. You know, first they came from, the first they came for is literally saying each one of these people were standing, they were, they were fighting to protect me. And what fascists knew is if we take out each one of these elements, at some point, we'll be able to get to the person who thinks that they're completely safe. Um, that in the fascist delusion or the right wing reactionary delusion is if there are these different elements that are that we're competing for in terms of power who are going to be aggressive against us. And we just knock them down one by one uh, that even, you know, a Christian religious leader can be worried about his own safety on, under that. And I think that is important to remember that that is how reactionary authoritarianism works. And so for people like us or people who say that they're fighting back against authoritarianism and fascism, do not both sides it. This is not a time to do a both sides. Right. It's just not both sides. Um, and I, I think that it's a warning, not just of what could happen with the rise of reactionaryism, but it's also a warning 
to anybody who, who thinks that they're being really smart and good and savvy by, by punching the people who are most likely be out there, um, you know, taking the hits first. All right. Uh, I have to ask you this question. Maybe I'm inside man. Are you talking about the Denzel movie? Yeah. That inside man where he, the, one of my favorite movies of the early O's that you just saw that. I was just, no, I've seen it. I've seen it multiple times. So me and, uh, uh, and my partner and some friends we watch, we do, we generally try to do a movie night, uh, every Sunday over, you know, virtually so that we can watch movies together. Cause we used to do that when, uh, um, they live here and they now live in Nebraska and rural Nebraska where, um, one of them is, she's, she's clergy. And so she's, you know, in the church. So we try to keep our, you know, our, our movie nights. Uh, uh and so one of the movies I decided to pick was inside man, um, which we joked and we said, Oh God, more propaganda. But, um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of my favorite movies. Oh, just, I love inside man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so good. And you know, it's a, it's a classic Spike Lee movie where he does like the close up angled shots and, yeah. um, you know, he's got the music, he's got the Winston Marsalis music going. Uh, and this is like particularly like Spike Lee post nine 11 era, you know, 25th hours, another one where he's making a statement about New York in a post nine 11. I mean, like he's just, He's, he's, he's making a political statement through his movies in a very around this, the 9-11 period. And I, I, I think that's a really good era of the Spike Lee movie is this post 9-11 oh, yeah. work. So, yeah. Dude, I, we can have a whole thing. Uh, by, my next interview that I'm doing, which will drop on Saturday, was Sergio Mims. I already told you this. Black Harvest Film Festival. We're talking about Borat 2. We're talking about the uh, Chicago Theater. We did a whole one on Spike Lee. And... This Inside Man is so uh, underappreciated, in my humble opinion, because it really is a Denzel. Denzel is just like Denzel being so cool. Yeah. And it's like a Denzel. On one level, it's Denzel. You know, it's he overcome. But there's you're right. There's so many takes, like the whole thing with the Sikh, and they think that he's a Muslim, yeah. and it's so New York. And then it's like, the what language is this, Romanian? It's some kind of uh, Eastern European language that they're speaking. They had a, nobody knows what they're saying, and the, everybody's got that New York attitude they're all yeah. prejudiced against each other and there's like subtle things in there so um you know jody foster plays the fixer and um i the, the, what's so good about this movie and that's clearly from the writing but it, it's played off so well in the beginning she's trying to help out bin laden's nephew find an apartment in new york you know which is controversial uh and yet she has a relationship with the mayor and then it ends. Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to. Yeah. Well, don't not, don't give not, it away. I won't say it, but it, it's this genius sort of like. I mean, it's been so many years. If people have seen Inside Man, I can't really. I mean, there's got to be like a <laughs> period because, like, it's been like 15 years here, but um, it's just so well done. And it is It is definitely a Denzel movie, but the best way to put it is it, it's a Denzel movie shot by Spike Lee. Yes. Like you've got the music going, you've got Denzel sort of doing his um that nineteen fifties detective noir yes. you know, hat going, he's got the baggy suit going. He's you know, he's clearly a tro- you know, we know in the background there's this troubled cop who's might be accused of stealing or something like that, but part of that is also because he's a black cop. 
and you get to, you know, you, you, you watch as this is kind of his redemption, but that's really sort of like a, a B part. And it's just so, it's so well played. And you know, that's because Spike Lee and Denzel have that relationship. Yes. You know, so they, 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 there's something, there's something symbiotic about it. And I think that's always been Spike's sort of thing is, um, as I love that we're talking about this. So uh, Spike's thing is, um, you know, if you think about for a white Italian movies, you have uh, Martin Scorsese and you have Robert De Niro. And I think for Spike, it's always been like, for me to tell this sort of black American story, particularly a black New York story, he's, he's leaned on Denzel to be that, to be that, to help shape that story for him. And so they just have that, they got to go. So I love that movie. I, and you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm all fired up. I'm a, I may well watch it tonight. That's, that's how much I'm all fired. I haven't seen it in about two years, which is a long time for me. Uh, I'm a huge Denzel fan. All right, let's uh, close it with some important. Uh, we almost had, it's like talking about that was like the dessert. So we had the dessert before we ate our vegetables. Okay. And our vegetables are fair tax. Everybody's got to vote for that freaking fair tax people. So Robert Peters explain to the multitudes why it's so important to vote yes on the fair tax. Yeah, I mean, I think, let me just do the basic thing. There are the people most adamantly working against it. They all have something really in common. They're ridiculously wealthy. And um, I think that says a lot. Uh, they, have, they seem to be so against this, and they, for some reason they're making all these threats. I think Ken Griffin recently said that he's going to take his business to Florida which, you know, he's going to think, oh, God, what a great tax structure and great thing. He's using these threats, and I think that needs to, to be the statement for everybody. The tax is on the rich. We are going to tax the rich. 97% of Illinoisans are going to see a tax cut or a tax reduction um, or the tax rate go down. There is a reason why these rich people don't want this, um, and that's because they're finally going to pay their fair share. Um, I think for so long, we've been paying at the same rate as some of the richest people in the world. Um, we've then seen uh, get hit with a bunch of regressive taxation. And here we have a moment to say enough with that. It's time someone like Ken Griffin or the U-Lines or whoever might be, people we don't really know their name, but we know that they're very rich pay their fair share um, and we get a little bit of a breather. And, you know, my, my I don't want to out a family member. I'm not going to say their, their name or how they relate to me. She called me and she's freaked out. She said, I don't know what I'm going to do about this fair tax. And then I freaked out. I said, what do you mean? I don't know what she's going to do about this fair tax. I was like, you need to vote for the fair tax. And she started grilling me on a bunch of questions. You know, she started talking about retirement income. I was like, that, how about, I was like, do me a favor, read the, let, let's read it. Let's read the ballot language. Yeah. I'm going to go through the ballot language and you tell me if that has anything to do with retirement income. So we read the ballot language and there was nothing about retirement income. And she said, okay, well, wouldn't this open up the Constitution? And I said, no. I'm going to read the ballot language. Oh my God. Let's go through the ballot language one more time. Everyone, just read the ballot language and then ask yourself one question. Do you believe that you should have the exact same tax rate as the people who own the Cubs? <laughs> and if you say no to that question, vote 
for the fair tax. That's it. There's nothing else. I'll repeat it one more time. If if you read the ballot language, that's one. That's all you need to know. And if you believe that you should pay the exact same tax taxes tax rate as the owners of the Chicago Cubs or whatever you they own something very expensive and you say no that's all you need to know about what you know whether you should vote for the fair tax or not if you believe that you should that someone who has 10 100 1000 maybe a million times more money than you and, and, and more than me, and you should pay the same tax rate as them, which I, I have a feeling most of us don't, mm-hmm. then that's another, that's just another place to go. But I think in my opinion, if you can buy a sports team and build a stadium and you can also invest that money across so many different parts of our financial sector and you can, like Ken Griffin, who I'm sure is going to try to give my primary a very big fight because I say his name so much. You know, Ken Griffin, the guy who's fighting the fair tax, let me just finish this off because I, I, I get I'm such a rant about this. My, my, my partner did civil disobedience at Citadel. It was her first thing. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a huge part was this Ken Griffin. But um, um, he owns the maybe the two or the three most expensive penthouses in the world in Miami, San Francisco and New York, as well as Chicago. Uh, so those are all hundreds of millions of dollars of condos that he can just buy. Um, he renamed the museum of science and industry, the museum of my childhood for hundreds of millions of dollars. He bought one of the best street artists turned painters, Basquiat's, Paintings, I think, for $50 million, maybe $50 million each. Don't hold me too much to that. What I do know is that's a lot of money. Hmm. He bought that. He has a wing, I believe, in the Art Institute. Um, I do not believe that we should be paying the same tax rate. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. That was well done. That was a good riff. And I, uh, I, I would like to say that um, Kenny G also uh, poured in about close to $50 million for the uh, anti-fair tax movement and to help uh, underwrite that commercial that bamboozled whatever unnamed relative that you were having the conversation with. Cause that was, we, we make fun of it all the time. It's the famous or infamous Phyllis commercial uh, where a senior citizen named Phyllis uh, claims somehow or other, even though there's nothing, it's just made up that they could possibly uh, tax retirement income. And uh, I just shake my head. If that Phyllis commercial works and you got geezers, uh, uh, pensioners voting no, I would say that is the single dumbest vote I have ever heard. And I, I, I'll say this, Robert Peters, I've always thought, that the black voters who voted for Rahm Emanuel in 2015 because he put the sweater on, that was the lowest in terms of like against your interest vote. But for a pensioner to vote no on the fair tax because of the Phyllis commercial breaks all records, in my humble opinion, Robert. I know, I know. I, here's the thing. It's, that's fair. And I know, and that's, that's, that's fair. And you're, you're angry as anybody else will be. But I, I think... That is the extent that these powerful people go to try to, I mean, 
if you're someone like, if you're a Phyllis or you're whatever, you got a lot of stuff you have to do in a day. You have a lot of things to do and you can't read the newspaper. Like we can't, you, you don't go online and learn these issues like we do. We're like, you know, this is, this is like our, our life. Right. And it is, my hope is that we're able to, you know, ARP is doing a lot of work on this is we can convince them that, that what's being told to them is bullshit. Uh, and to let them know that people like Ken Griffin rather raid their pensions um, and doesn't actually care about them. Um, and I, you know, hopefully and there's organizations that aren't, you know, coming from vote yes for fairness, you know, there's a vote yes for fair tax coalition um, that's doing a lot of work on this. And, you know, I would say to anybody who wants to learn more, they should talk to those folks that, you know, they should, they can, if they want to, um, you know, they can, if they use Facebook, hit me up, whatever, I'm down to talk to people, but the people who are telling us to vote no on their tax want to vote. They don't care about the pension other than the fact that they know it increases their profit margin. All right. Very good. And I like that. I'm going to adopt that. Uh, Robert Peters like restraint from now on. I'm not going to be angry. But I'm cool. I'm going I'm to pretend I'm a commentator on NPR. <laughs> and I'll just say, you know, it's interesting. The fair tax. Who it affects. I'm going to I'm going to find that in me, Robert Peters. I'm going to channel you. OK, I get angry, too. I get angry, too. Let me tell you, I get it. I get angry. Uh, I get angry. <laughs> No, I'm going to work. On, I'm really going to work. On. You know what? You're never too old to learn new tricks. All right. This old dog can learn new tricks. All right, Robert Peters. It's always a blast talking to you. Stay safe and sound and let's uh, get together. Let's not let so much time go in between visits. How about that? All right. That would be great. It's always a pleasure. Uh, and thanks for having me on. That's the great Robert Peters. I'm Ben Jarowski. Take care, everybody.